Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, here at Brick, we are fortunate to have neighbors who bring the borough great cultural programming, and when we're lucky, water our plants while we're away. And we have occasion to talk about two of them today. First up, we welcome the literal new kid on the block, the recent emigre from Manhattan, the Center for Fiction. Brooklyn really is one of the literary centers of the world now. There are so many writers living here. There are so many independent presses here. When we were in Midtown Manhattan, our audience came from Brooklyn. And then the old guard. BAM is hosting the fifth annual Caribbean film series next week. We'll be joined by the co-director of the series and one of the featured filmmakers. You know, even though Yes, you can say, like, you know, when you're looking at the series, you're thinking, oh, there's so many Caribbean films and filmmakers. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, no, we need so much more. I speak only for myself, but the reasons to go into Manhattan are getting fewer and fewer. Russ and Daughters just opened in the Navy Yard. We have a Supreme store, if that's your thing. And now the Center for Fiction has relocated from Midtown Manhattan to 15 Lafayette Avenue in downtown Brooklyn, just around the corner from us here at Brick. It seems like a fitting relocation with fiction writers from Jennifer Egan to Jonathan Lethem to Jumpa Lahiri calling Brooklyn home. Joining us to talk truth and fiction, we're joined by Noreen Tomasi, the Center's executive director. Thanks for joining us. And we also have author Mitchell Jackson, who is a former fellow at the center and whose new book, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, has just been released. Thanks so much for coming on Moment 2BK. Thank you. Noreen, maybe we'll start with you. Can you tell me what the Center for Fiction is? What's your mission? Sure. We're a literary nonprofit. We're one of the few literary nonprofits in the entire country that actually has our own building, our own space. I think there are about... 10 in the entire country. We're the only literary nonprofit in the entire country focused on the art of fiction. There's Poets House, there's the Playwrights Center, there are centers for other forms. But we focus on fiction. And more broadly, we focus on storytelling in all its forms. So how people tell stories between the covers of a book, how they tell them on screens, large and small, how they tell the stories through music, through dance, through other forms. So the new space in Brooklyn gives us an opportunity to do all of that in a gorgeous space, if I do say so myself. The space is beautiful. Our architect, Julie Nelson, did a magnificent job in integrating 70,000 books into a space and not having it feel dark or overcrowded. And Noreen, why the decision to move the center from the cultural backwater that is Manhattan to Brooklyn? There are so many reasons. We were in midtown Manhattan, and we were not surrounded by like-minded cultural organizations. That was a big problem. So here, we're in the middle of a cultural district that has how many? 40 arts institutions of one kind or another within a mile of one another. We're right across the street from the Brooklyn Academy of Music, around the corner from Brick, next to Theater for a New Audience and Mark Morris. It gives us so many opportunities to collaborate and to share audiences. Brooklyn really is one of the literary centers of the world now. There are so many writers living here. There are so many independent presses here. When we were in Midtown Manhattan, our audience came from Brooklyn. We also really liked the idea of being in a borough where we felt 
connected to the diversity that really is New York City. And sometimes in midtown Manhattan, you don't feel that. Sure, a little so. less diverse, I think yeah. you can say. Mm -hmm. um, Mitchell, do you live in Brooklyn? I don't. I was there for 10 years, but uh, I'm coming back. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Center for Fiction. Um, the first time that I was in the Center for Fiction, I was taking a workshop with uh, an old editor named Gordon Lish, uh, and that was the summer of 2009. And uh, Noreen was running the Center then and would come and sit in the back of our workshop sometime and listen to us read and listen to Gordon spew philosophy after philosophy <laughs> at us. And Noreen, uh, what were you doing there? Were you just like trying to keep an eye on things, like scout new talent? Well, I was interested in the writers who were in Gordon's class, but um, also Gordon is a very, very interesting man. <laughs> and it was helpful for me to be in the room with him to see how he was teaching, how the students are were reacting. It was a very, very long class. I can't yeah. remember exactly. It's like Mitch. six to eleven or something like that. And it never ended at eleven. Yeah. <laughs> ever. So people were in the room from six to midnight. Yeah. And I wanted to be there with them and check to see that everyone was okay, that it was working well. I thought, and I don't know if um, Mitch agrees with this still, but I thought Jordan was kind of a genius yeah. at bringing out in people what would most make them burn with desire to write. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this was about 10 years ago. This is about 10 years ago, yeah. And so what does the Center for Fiction offer to young writers who are maybe working on their, their first or their second book? Well, I think the thing that comes first to mind is a fellowship program, which I was uh, one of the inaugural fellows in 2011. And I can remember when I was a fellow that uh, I went to, there was the gala, and we all were invited to the gala. And I sat down at a table, and it had the placards. This is when I didn't know that everyone had seating. And the person was like, oh, you can't sit there. I said, okay. And she was like, what's your name? I said, Mitchell. She said, Mitchell Jackson? I said, yeah. She said, oh, I'm from Bloomsbury. And then someone else came to the table, and they were also from Bloomsbury, and another person came. And then I realized that I was at the Bloomsbury table while my novel was on submission to Bloomsbury. And so one, Noreen had the foresight to put me at a table that was going to help me along in my career. And the other things, well, I was just in that room. And to me, that's probably, I mean, I know the National Book Awards are important, but to me, the Center for Fiction is probably the most important place to be in the literary world in any given year. And you've referred to Noreen as your literary fairy godmother, yes. is that right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Noreen, do you see that as part of your role to try and open doors or bring bring young authors who maybe are outside of the literary establishment inside make those connections? I do. There are two things that are most important to me in my work, aside from um, ensuring that the Center for Fiction thrives. Of course, I want to do that. But... Uh, there are two programs, and one is the program for emerging writers and how we support emerging writers and how we continue to build the connections among the people who have been our emerging writer fellows. There's nothing more important to me than developing and assisting young writers and emerging writers of all ages, really, um, to get them started on their careers. It's, it's, so, it's so fulfilling, it's so interesting, and it's lots of fun, so I love it. 
So your building, you mentioned, it's very inviting. Um, it has these huge windows you can see inside. You can see all of the books. Are there? Is it open to the public? If people are walking by, how can they mm-hmm. participate in the offerings that the Center for Fiction has? It is open to the mm-hmm. public. We have the entire first floor with our auditorium, our cafe, our bookshop. It's all open to the public. If people want to use the upstairs rooms, a beautiful reading room, beautiful terrace, they need to join as a member, which is only $150 a year. It's very cheap. Or they can enroll in our writer's studio or in um, reading groups or in our writing workshops. I also want to go back for a minute to supporting emerging writers. There is... I think a sense that fiction writers don't need the same kind of support early in their career that poets might need or that playwrights Poets are very fragile, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) They are. (laughs) But but because of Stephen King, because there are fiction writers that are very, very, very successful, there's, I think, a widespread notion that fiction writers should just sink or swim. But really, I think for the first five to ten years of a fiction writer's career, they need support, they need community, they need the help, they need a place to be, um, both a real place to go to and find support, but also just psychically a place where they know they're loved and supported. I think it's important. So, Mitchell, your current book that just came out, Survival Math, is not a work of fiction. No, it's nonfiction. Um, But your debut novel was sort of a work of autobiographical fiction, right? Yes. But you've talked a little bit about how you don't really see too much distance between writing nonfiction and writing fiction. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? I I think, you know, one of the things we used to talk about in Gordon's class is like, are you telling the truth? Are you writing from your wound? Um, And I really take that as a kind of, as an impetus for all of my work. Like, I want to kind of shed a really critical light on some of the experiences that I've had and some of the people close to me and the people in my community. And so I, I, I see my work as like speaking to each other. Like, And so I'll be back, and so I'll find a way to make sure that these books are in conversation. So, yeah, I, and I agree with you that, I mean, I think fiction writers don't often... I mean, it's like if one fiction writer is successful, they take that as the case for too many of us. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you started writing the residue years when you were in prison. Is that right? Yes, this I is imagine true. there wasn't like a lot of support. <laughs> I mean, there maybe I'm none. wrong. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, actually, I, I think I don't think I told anyone that I was doing it. I remember I got on restriction not to go to the hole, but like they just make you sit on your bunk for like all day or something. And I started writing then, and some people would come by like, man, what you doing? Oh, man, don't worry about it. (laughs) But I brought those pages home, and eventually I took them to graduate school with me in another graduate program, and then they became the novel. But also, while I was a fellow or studying with Gordon, I was working on uh, that novel, and he was actually the person that sent me to my uh, first agent and read the manuscript for me. So again, it's like I can connect so much of what's happened to me over this last 10 years back to the... Center for Fiction. I'm curious about um, outreach that you both perhaps individually do Mm. or that you do with Center for Fiction um, to communities that maybe are underserved, whether that be prison populations Mm. or um, children in schools. Um, Do you do any of that work yourself, Mitchell? And then maybe we can talk a bit about what the Center for Fiction does. Um, Yes, I do. Uh, I was 
for I think three or four years a um, a book up in structure. It's a program for the National Book Foundation where they send authors into neighborhoods that are maybe underfunded schools, and we uh, just get middle schoolers excited about reading, and then we go out on field trips to like libraries and other kind of literary uh, venues. Personally, I still, I mean, I don't love going to the prison, but I still feel it's necessary and essential for me to go into youth facilities, group homes, prisons. Um, I'm actually going to uh, Rikers two or three times this month, I think, yeah, when I come back off book tour. So, yeah, it's really important to me. And Noreen, what about the work at the Center for Fiction? It's so interesting that you're saying that because mm-hmm. last night I went to the book launch for uh, Survival Math and I was sitting there with a colleague uh, listening to Mitch read and Mitch is an astonishing reader. He reads his work so beautifully. But we turned to each other at a certain point and said, we've just expanded our kids read program to include high school kids. Mm-hmm. And the kids read serves um, schools in all five boroughs that are in some of the most challenged locations. And for many of the kids that are part of the program, the first book that they get is a book that they get from us. Mm-hmm. The first encounter they have with an author is the encounter they have with an author through Kids Read. And we've been working with young children and up to middle school. We're expanding it to high school now because we think especially for young men, it's such a pivotal time in their lives, 14, 15, 16, 17, where there's an opportunity to show them some other reality, some other way of living. When I said before there are two things that mean a great deal to me, one is uh, supporting emerging writers, and the other is this program that we did, Kids Read, Kids Write, because I feel that Access to books when I was a child in challenging circumstances literally saved my life. Mm. And so I want to do that for other children. Betty Smith's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was one of my favorite books as a child. And I think that that really encompasses this feeling of like books being a window into worlds that Mm -hmm. offer more hope than the one that you're currently living in. Did you know she lived in Queens? Really? (laughs) Everyone wants to be in Brooklyn, especially if they live in Queens. Um, Mitch, I hear that you're a great reader uh, through the grapevine. Um, Would you be interested in reading something for us from Uh, Survival Man? Sure. Hmm. Maybe a... Okay, I'll just read the opening. Great. So the opening is a letter to this guy named Marcus who died in 1788. Um, He was the first person of African descent to uh, step onto the soil of what became Oregon, so it wasn't a state yet. Um, Dear Marcus, ain't no way you could know this, but you were the first of us to set foot on the land that became the state where I was born, Oregon. And now here we are, strangers, but not estranged, more like kindred, more like forevermore tethered to terra firma by a death date and a birth date. Yours, August 16th, 1788. Mine, August 16th, 1975. Here I am centuries after your death wanting to share with you what has become of the place where you gasped your last breath and I gloried my first. Thank you. I, it, that's a wonderful opening. Both the opening and the closing of this book 
are so astonishing. I encourage everyone to read it, um, and I think it opens and closes with letters. Yeah. Yeah, and with the it closes with a letter to your daughter. Uh huh. Yeah, but as he was reading, I was thinking that the most the thing that we observe in our emerging writers program, and that I think it's so important to talk about, is that we're in the midst of an enormous sea change in the world of fiction, where some of the most exciting voices, some of the most interesting work is coming from writers of color all over the country. It's an astonishing explosion of creativity that I think people are only beginning to be aware of. I think 50 years from now, people will look back at this time the way they looked at the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. I really do, because there are so many voices that are doing such interesting things and stretching our notion of what fiction can be. Mm -hmm. So it's a great time to be alive and to be a reader. Absolutely. And maybe we'll just close out with um, one piece of advice from each of you that you might give to a young fiction writer. Well, the easiest piece of advice I can give to a fiction writer is keep writing and know you don't have to write every day because you have a life and you have to make a living. Yeah. And come to the Center for Fiction and find a home there. We'll help you. Mitchell? I think we feel a pressure to publish and to publish quickly and to publish widely. And I would say don't rush to publication. Like, wait until you feel like this thing is better than what you thought you could make it before like kind of getting into the the author like to be a writer right and just revise before you start worrying about being an author great advice mitchell noreen thank you so much for coming on the show thank, thank you, you. miss cleo Tay Diggs in How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Brad Pitt as Death in Meet Joe Black, telling a grandma from the islands that Eriting Guan be Irie. The list of bad Caribbean accents in film and television is longer than the chances that a Jamaican bobsled team could medal in the Olympics. But you'll hear no Jafakan accents at the Caribbean film series, which begins its four-day run at BAM next week. The series, which is entering its fifth year, is a platform for films from the Caribbean and its diaspora. And to tell us more, we're joined by Curtis Caesar John, co-director of the series. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. And we also have Santanish Myers, whose short Cross My Heart is in the lineup. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Curtis, maybe you can tell us why the festival is important. What inspired you to start it? Well, we decided to start the festival really because there was not really a big platform for Caribbean films to be shown in Brooklyn. One of my partners, she um, had an organization where she was showing exclusively Caribbean films, mostly short films in local spaces. But then I had a relationship with BAM, and so we got together and decided, you know, let's try and do this on a bigger scale. And thankfully, they were very open to that. And obviously, Brooklyn is home to so many Caribbean nationals, the biggest home to Caribbean nationals outside of the region itself. And so... It was kind of a, it's like, why hadn't this happened before? Right. And, and so we made it happen. And Santis, how did you get involved in the festival? Well, I mean, some of it is just 
I think after making this film, I reached, you know, just a new level of immersion with my Caribbean community within film. And so I had a professor at NYU who's Trinidadian. And so he introduced me to Romola, who's the co-director of the Caribbean film series. And then I had another NYU person who introduced me to, who's from St. Vincent, who introduced me to Curtis. And things just kind of came together. And I became really aware of this amazing series. And happy for the community to exist in this way. And Cross My Heart is a short, and it's screening as part of a short series. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so can you tell me a little bit about it and about your own background and why it was important for you to tell this story? Sure. Uh, Cross My Heart is set in Kingston, Jamaica. It follows an American teenage girl who goes to Jamaica to visit her family and learns a secret that changes the way she sees the people she loves. So the film kind of explores the culture of silence and why, and the various reasons why women in particular retreat to silence in an effort to protect each other, but it kind of raises the question, who is it actually protecting? And we have a brief clip from the short that we want to show. <laughs> so... Any boyfriends? Boyfriends? She's just a child. How old are you now, Minnie? Fifteen. Same as Sarah. Yes, right. Well, all she needs to do now is just focus on her schoolwork. Mm -hmm. She don't need to trouble herself with no boys. How are you when you start liking girls? Ninety-five. <laughs> More like five. This guy was precocious, man. Besides, boys are different. So tell me a little bit about the scene that we just saw here. Hmm. Well, this scene in particular, I was really interested in just kind of colliding all of the characters into one physical space. And it was a really fun exercise of exploring tension um, through subtle performances. It's really just this dinner scene of who knows what when and how that kind of plays out in the relationships amongst these family members. And the performances by your lead actors are really just amazing and They're nuanced, incredible. very sensitive. Yeah, um, Jordan Amanda, it, I grew so much as a director from directing both Jordan Amanda and Jada, where Jordan Amanda, she, we had a lot of conversations about her thought process and what her character was thinking beat by beat. and. Jada, she was a very intuitive actor. So as a, as a director, it was knowing when to get out of her way and like make her own choices. And I grew so much from having to be a kind of a different director for each of them because um, you have to learn how to be sensitive to what your actor needs in a way that won't annoy them so, um, and, or pull them out of being present. And yeah, they were amazing. Right. And Jordan Amanda is the cousin who's coming from the United States. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And it was, it's actually really funny. She's Jamaican-American and hadn't yet been to Jamaica before we shot this film. So when she had arrived, I think, you know, several days before shoot, she met one of her uncles for the first time that she had never met before. And uh, they had talked on the phone plenty, but like had never met face to face. And so it was also just like a beautiful diasporic kind of reunion in, in that way. That was a really cool thing to be able to observe. And what about your own background? My mom is from the state. She's from Maryland, and my dad is from Jamaica. Uh, my dad made me, you know, sent me to Jamaica, I think, every summer since I could walk. And um, we actually shot the film in my childhood home, which is at my aunt's house in, in Kingston. And tell me a little bit, Curtis, about... Um how the short series fits in with the rest of the programming. What are some of the other films that you have in the series this year? Well, actually, our opening night film is a very exciting one from, um, 
first-time director, Idris Elba, who you might know as an actor from, you know, these I, shows and movies. I you feel know? like there's nothing that he doesn't do, right? He's like an actor. He has a cocktail bar in London. He's a DJ. Yeah. And now it's like he's a director, too. Exactly, so. yeah. And he's like, so good-looking. Okay, so thanks, Idris. <laughs> <And, uh, yeah. laughs> so but the opening film um, is, is Yardy. Yeah, yes. Yardy is his film. And um, we actually have the, uh, the star. He's going to be here for Q&A and um, one of the other co-stars as well. Sheldon Shepard. He was in a film called Better Must Come. And then we also have the next night, we have a great Haitian film, Duvan Jokaliv, um, for the filmmaker Jessica Genuis. And her film just really talks about the intersection of religion, uh, Christianity, and voodoo in Haiti. Um, but it's also like a personal film. It's a documentary, just a personal film, just about uh, her growing up there and her family and their relationships to all of that. And a lot of ways, the shorts encapsulate the entire festival because they have films that represent the entire Caribbean region. There's films from Jamaica, from the UK, from Haiti again. And it's funny because the the short films, they connect they connect in a really easy way to the rest of the festival just because they represent the entire region, but also di- the diaspora. Our thing is we're not just, and you can see from South Tunisia, you know, she's half uh, Jamaican, half American, and but, you know, Caribbean is Caribbean. And so the diaspora is just as important as getting films from directors that are straight out the region because it's all representative of the entire uh, community. Yeah, that's what I love about the series. I was like so excited about the lineup because one, it was such it's such an opportunity for entertainment, but also education. Like, don't you have a documentary that's like set in Puerto Rico as well? Yes. And um, Black Mother, which is a dope documentary that's um, shot in Jamaica. I'm so excited for Black oh Mother. Oh my God, it's so good. And it's made in such an intentional and expansive and experimental for lack of a better word way and it, it but I saw like my grandmother in it I saw mm. my my cousin in it like it was just so so powerful and so it's it's so diverse um just like within the Caribbean community and I think that that's so important mm-hmm. yeah thank you for that because it's it's the thing about the films we show we don't so so even like something like Black Mother it's it's classified as a documentary but it's so many things <laughs> right um so we try to push the gamut on what kind of films, what, what people actually call a film. Like we have a film that's showing a short film from a semi-local filmmaker called An Excavation of Us, and it's animation, but it's kind of not animation. <laughs> it's, an, it's, 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 it's another one that's hard to describe, yeah. but it's just so beautifully done. And just to have to be able to show this filmmaker's work, actually second, for the second time, during our series, it's just, it means everything to us. I mean, it feels like it's really an exciting moment for Caribbean film. I mean, both Yardi and Black Mother um, have theatrical distribution, right? Mm-hmm. And also Babylon mm-hmm. is being released in U.S. theaters for the first time, or for the first time ever, I believe, even though, even though it came out in, in 1980. Do you find that that makes it easier or harder to program a Caribbean film series to have sort of this wealth of, of films about and by people from the Caribbean diaspora? It's never actually been that difficult to program because the work is out there. And that's the point of doing the series and the point of our ongoing work is just that the work is out there. People just aren't getting access to it. So to be able to provide that access to so many of these filmmakers, um, whether it's based right here in New York or whether they're in Canada or Jamaica or the U.K., for them to be able to show their work to, to audiences here in New York is is so much. Mm-hmm. So It's so important, the work that you're doing. And because I think that, you know, even though, yes, you can say, like, you know, when you're looking at the series, you're thinking, oh, there are so many Caribbean films and filmmakers. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, no, we need so much more. I think that the Caribbean as a whole is such an untapped 
source of stories. And there's, and also we're just such incredible storytellers, mm-hmm. like naturally, culturally. But I think that there's so, there's so much diversity in that experience and so many different ways to discuss it. I think with my film, it was important. It was natural for me, but it was also important to me to kind of show that a Jamaican life can look very different ways. I think it's important for us to continue to contribute to the fabric of what Caribbean lives look like. Mm-hmm. And Santanish, you know, in the intro, I sort of made reference to the fact that there are plenty of bad Jamaican accents to choose from, <sighs> right? But it's, it's true because it's I was it trying seems... not to cackle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Brad Pitt one is appalling. Oh. But I mean, I think that it's worth reflecting on, like, why is that? Like, why are there often so many, like, Jamaican sidekick stereotype roles and almost none of them are written or directed by people from the Caribbean, right? Like it it strikes me as very important that people uh, with roots in the islands are are coming up and coming to the forefront and telling their own stories. So I don't know if you have thoughts about that, about why this trope Re- reappears time and time again, whether it's like Sebastian in The Little Mermaid or like Dan Aykroyd in full blackface yeah. and why we think that that's an okay thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it comes to the people who are making the decisions, who are in the... Cre- that's why it's so important and that's why, you know, I'm so glad that you exist and you and are doing the work that you're doing because it's the decision makers, the people who are in creative roles that affect how the pro- how the product ends up looking like when you have the decision makers not having a sensitivity or a proximity to the culture you're going to miss some things and then you're not going to realize it until the entire community is like and i think that that's something that kind of goes across the board i don't think that's just a Caribbean um, experience. I think that's something that basically every brown person in this country can relate to. And Curtis, you mentioned how here in Kings County, we have this enormous Caribbean population or people who are descended from people from the Caribbean. How do you think about your audience? Do you feel like this film series is for specifically that community? Or are you trying to also bring people from outside the community Mm -hmm. in to learn and share some of these films? We're always trying to bring people from outside of the Caribbean community to enjoy these films, and and they do. Our audience ends up being a lot of times, if not 75, 25, 75 on the Caribbean side, um, sometimes just straight up 50-50, where it's just a very diverse audience, and you see the people and they enjoy and they want to learn more about what these film is talking about or how it entertains you or how you learn from it. I mean, we show so many different things that I, I can actually go across all those categories, you mm-hmm. know? But yeah, the audience is, and they always thank us afterwards for like bringing these films to them because, you know, people want to discover and they want to be able to access their imagination in this particular way. And they can't do so if um, they just watch the same things over and over again. And um, so if people are interested in going to see some of the films, how do they do that? Where do they get tickets? Give us all the details. They can go right to bam.org and get tickets for the film. We're on the schedule. You can find us very easily. Or they could go to CaribbeanFilmSeries.nyc and access information about the entire festival, including links to tickets right there. And specifically, if they want to see Santanisha's short, um, what is the name of that short program? It's called Caribbean Diaspora Shorts Program, so it's very on the nose. Got it. <laughs> and Got so it. they can't miss it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Sounds you so much. Thank you. And that's the show for today. Please join us next time when we talk about America's first black millionaires and a yarn about drama in the knitting community. We'll unravel the story.
What Went To BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 